Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. Here we are at Christmas again. Hard to believe how quickly the year goes by. So much has happened. My kids have moved up a year at school. I've moved roles at work. Family members have recovered from illnesses. And the podcast has moved through some epic times and epic events. Last year's special on Dickens seems like it was an age ago. It is quite hard to know what to do for a Christmas special compared to that. After all, Dickens was so fundamental to Christmas as a concept that he had to be the starting point. But Dickens wasn't the only person creating the Victorian Christmas. This year, I'm going to show some of the Victorian traditions that they have created and passed down to us and run you through why there wasn't a typical Victorian Christmas day before finishing if we have time, with a Victorian Christmas ghost story and a Victorian Christmas carol. First, I want to say a huge thank you, though, to everyone in this community. When I started out with this podcast, I dreamed of a community of Victorian lovers meeting a community of the curious, all coming together to exchange ideas. I'm blown away that so many awesome people have reached out to me after listening, or have been inspired to use the podcast in their schools or university courses, or just found it helpful while studying or reading 19th century novels. I especially love it when people listen to the show for the first time and say, wow, I never knew anything about the Victorians and was never interested. Now I'm hooked. And why didn't people tell me about how important they were at literally changing the world. I'm grateful for all the reviews. I've learned a lot from all of them. And thank you to The Cracker M. Chi, Erpso, NYSA00, David Onion Ball, Miss Megab1521, and Frank Schumpert for the lovely iTunes reviews. You are all very kind, and I'm delighted you are enjoying the show, whether the episode in question is whimsical or serious. Frank, your review in particular was truly humbling. Thank you. I'm also grateful for the snippets of information people send me, or the news about their Victorian ancestors. People from all over the world listen, from Denmark to the United States, to Spain and Australia, via Canada, and plenty more. I'm bowled over at the listener donations. It helps enormously. I want this show to be free, independent from ads and networks, and so it thrives on your donations. In the past year, these donations have gone to pay for research books, online academic journal access, better editing software, and more. 
I appreciate it so much. So thank you to everyone who donated. And I hope if you are considering a donation, you find this a good enough reason. Now, the approach I'm going to cover is to give you a brief look at the development of some of the traditions that made up Christmas, including Christmas trees and Christmas cards. Then I'll give you some background to some of those famous Victorian Christmas traditions. This will be followed by one of my favourite Victorian traditions, if we can squeeze it in somehow, the Christmas ghost story. Finally, you can have a carol. So, pull up a sofa, a box of quality streets, or a nice bacon sandwich, and a single malt in front of the fire, and enjoy. Let's start with the Christmas trees. There are two myths around the Victorians and Christmas trees. The first myth is that the Victorians invented the Christmas tree. The second myth is that Prince Albert brought the custom to England from Germany. Neither of these things is correct. The Victorians certainly didn't invent the tree, or the idea of a Christmas tree, nor did Prince Albert bring the idea to the United Kingdom, despite what you read in those top 10 Victorian facts articles. The decorating of Christmas trees was a German custom, and the royal family was German, so it shouldn't be surprising that George III adopted them when his wife Charlotte introduced them from Germany in 1761. Queen Victoria's mother kept up the custom of Christmas trees when Queen V was a girl. One of Victoria's earliest journal entries on the 24th of December 1835 says, quote, We then went into the drawing room near the dining room. After Mama had rung a bell three times, we went in. There were two large round tables on which were placed two trees hung with lights and sugar ornaments. End quote. So, that's pretty strong first-hand evidence that they were here well before Prince Albert. What Prince Albert wanted to do was to popularise the tradition of Christmas trees. And he took personal charge of decorating them at Windsor. Victoria quickly fell into the spirit of things, saying in her diary on the 24th of December 1841, quote, Christmas I shall always look upon as a most dear and happy time, also for Albert, who enjoyed it naturally still more in his happy home, which mine certainly as a child was not. It is a pleasure to have this blessed festival associated with one's happiest days, the very smell of the Christmas trees, of pleasant memories, to think we have already two children now, and one who already enjoys the sight. It seems like a dream. End quote. What a difference those ten years made. Freud would have a field day with that quote. The prince was immensely proud of his decorated tree with sweets and candles. In 1848, the Illustrated London News published a wonderful illustration of the tree with the royal family gathered around it. Where royalty goes, society follows. And pretty soon, it was de rigueur. It helps that Christmas trees are lovely, so you can see why it became a hit. The media-savvy Queen V 
and Prince Albert had scored an early win, tree decorations became more available as advances in mechanisation and printing in the 1850s made them cheaper and easier to produce. Of course, there were still an enormous fire risk associated with Christmas trees, but then so much in the Victorian home was a huge fire risk anyway. Hot on the heels of the Christmas tree was the Christmas card. They seemed like such an obvious idea, but they relied on mass literacy and cheap postage, plus sufficient disposable income available to a consumer market. They had been invented in 1843 by Sir Henry Cole, who was to become the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Initially, they were far too expensive for most Victorians, who continued with the simple letter. Advances in printing and ink technology allowed better quality, mass-produced versions to come out. It was the introduction of the halfpenny rose-red stamp in 1870 that allowed them to become a mania and a Christmas staple. The Victorian Christmas card market was a riot of colour and design. Sweet little children, intricate lettering, kittens, trees, delightful chocolate box style toy soldiers, all graced cards, as did epic adventures of children being chased by undead snowmen, murdered frogs, dead birds of all kinds, and who could resist the kidnapping of a small child by the demonic Krampus. Good times. Not that the only innovations came from the upper class. Sweet shop owner Tom Smith invented the Christmas cracker in 1840, although it took him till 1860 to get the bang right. Even innovations that seem upper class, like Christmas cards, weren't. They were middle class designed and working class produced for the benefit of the upper classes. Then, as economies of scale and better production kicked in, they became more widely available. Don't ever be misled into thinking a product is the sole invention of a single genius. Everything rests on the complex interlocking of other processes and skills to produce finished articles. The lone genius inventor might produce the idea and the initial thing, albeit usually only when other technology has become available, but it takes long supply chains and complex chains of production and workers to create the mass market goods. So for these new innovations to become tradition, all of the supporting elements had to fall into place. Better printing and manufacturing, fall in prices, increased literacy, better communication networks with railways, rationalisation of street addresses, the rise of the idea of the home as a family sphere, separate from the working sphere. That's very important, as the idea of the domestic household was much more of a Victorian invention than we realise. The home 
as a mix of shop, farm, small factory and place to sleep was giving way to the sharp distinction between work happening out there and home life happening in here. The image of the idealised Christmas was a part of this and a powerful cultural touchstone, but it also served as a piece of imperial propaganda. It emphasised traditional values as they were described, encouraged the Victorian primacy of the stable, sober family unit. It tied Victoria to her people as queen, then later as mother and grandmother to the nation. When soldiers around the world were in strange mess halls, they could try and follow home traditions at Christmas time and feel connected. This was especially useful for the precariously populated colonies like New Zealand or Australia, where the British hold was weaker than the iron grip on India. Still, don't let your cynicism run away with you here. Expats today, the world over, might tell you they enjoy celebrating Los Reyes Magos or Thanksgiving when they are overseas too. The Victorians who could afford it expected to make an effort for Christmas. The older, more rustic decorations were no longer up to standard. Castle's Family Magazine, for instance, said, quote, To bring about a general feeling of enjoyment, much depends on the surroundings. It is worthwhile to, dispo- to bestow some little trouble on the decoration of the rooms. End quote. It still meant hard work for the servants. Christmas was not a holiday for them, in the same way as it was for their lords and masters. Ruth Goodman, in her excellent How to Be a Victorian, gives a good sketch of it. Quote, Hannah Culwick was a woman who worked in domestic service her entire life. For many years, she kept a diary recording her daily working routine. In her neat blue handwriting, she writes that she usually woke at six, although if there was extra work to be done, it could be much earlier. Spring cleaning, as the days lengthened, generally entailed a 5am start, but there was also the occasional lie-in. On Christmas Day in 1863, she stayed in bed until a luxurious eight o'clock. Each morning, she would light the fires, shake out the carpet, polish the dining room furniture, eat her own breakfast, clean a pair of boots and scrub the front steps before her employer's family woke up, end quote. That's quite a lot of work to start the day with, but don't feel smug. It is still quite common today amongst hotel and cruise ship workers, office cleaners, bakers, delivery staff, and many, many more. We just don't always recognise the hard work that still goes on around us. What is different is the expectations placed on a woman like Hannah, that she works in a home and probably sleeps there. 
her entire life will revolve around the home she serves, even on Christmas Day, or would do if Hannah were a typical servant. Shh, spoilers. Male domestic servants would have their own similar routines, depending on if they were footmen, grooms, butlers. Also, did you notice the point about fires? That was the way to warm the house or cook. For most Victorians, the day started cold. I mean that. Even the houses of the very rich were poorly insulated, with little in the way of thermal control. Also, the Victorians believed that air needed to be circulated vigorously in houses, so windows were often let up, left open. Unless you were extremely rich, thick blankets and thick clothes were how to stay warm overnight or in the morning. Fires might not be lit upstairs either due to the expense, so the main warmth might be in the kitchen. Dickens makes a big thing of warm fires in A Christmas Carol, and fire as a motif in Victorian literature is a really interesting theme to study. Fires were associated with happiness, with wealth, with family, with social events. Scrooge refusing to light the fire when he could afford to is used as a clear signal that he is deliberately rejecting these associations. With that in mind, you can see that the basic traditions that gathered around Christmas were beginning to coalesce. Just think how many of those still shape our Christmas day today. But the reality of a Victorian Christmas was very much different than how those traditions might imply. I shouldn't say the Victorian Christmas, because even today, everyone has a different Christmas with different traditions. Some people drink lots and eat quality streets watching lots of TV. Others go all out on a cheap turkey feast. Some go to restaurants or pubs for Christmas lunch. Others are very religious and stick to a meal on Christmas Eve with midnight mass. One person even goes on TV to explain how her year has been living in her castles. If you are Spanish, Christmas Day might not be a big thing at all, but Christmas Eve might be, followed by the arrival of the three kings, Los Reyes Magos, in January. For the Victorians, it was even more complex. During the years of Victoria's life and her reign, society was upended. Technologies and mass consumer products appeared, and the Victorians had Christmas to celebrate around the world. For some, this meant in the clubs and messes of the Indian Army, or on a hot, arid farmstead in Australia. For others, it meant attending to duties in the Army, or the local administration, and wondering why these strange British Christians were singing songs about winter and snow in the middle of summer, perhaps grumbling to friends that you were going to have to do extra duties again, because it was well known that the Shahibs would be getting drunk. At West Point, in 1826, some cadets, including Jefferson Davies, got so drunk on Christmas Eve that they kicked off 
the eggnog riot, which only concluded on Christmas Day. This resulted in fights, gunfire and one of the barracks being fortified before order was restored and plenty of courts martial followed. Davis himself escaped court martial since he had had limited involvement but future Confederate General Benjamin Humphreys was expelled. Not all Christmas events turned out so well. The 25th of December 1831 saw the Great Jamaican Slave Revolt against the British and involved up to 60,000 of the 300,000 Jamaican slaves. It was quickly put down by local British forces, supplemented by local supporters. Casualties were surprisingly light during the uprising, but the reprisals by the slave-holding plantation owners were horrific, so much so that pressure in Britain to end slavery became all but irresistible in 1834. Nor was Britain alone. In the US, the Second Seminole War against the native tribes continued, with the Battle of Lake Okeechobee on the 25th of December 1837. On that occasion, Colonel Zachary Taylor lost a battle against the Seminole people whilst trying to force them onto reservations. It was spun as a great US victory, which is strange considering US troop losses. For British troops and Indian troops in Afghanistan, Christmas 1841 was a grim time indeed. The British envoy had been murdered two days before and they were trapped in a desperate situation in a miserable cantonment under siege. A few weeks later would see them mostly destroyed in the retreat through the Khyber Pass, one of the greatest military disasters in history. Still, Christmas could be an opportunity for peace and reconciliation. As with Andrew Jackson, president in 1868, issuing a pardon, quote, to all and to every person who, directly or indirectly, participated in the late insurrection or rebellion, end quote. Even in mainland Britain, Christmas was diverse across place and class, from impoverished Cornish miners to gin-addicted dock workers, to the half-pay society-loving captain, to the tough women's rights reformers, to the grandest duchess. Around the empire, people missed the old country, its rhythms and certainties. Perhaps they wondered if the new life was going to match up to the old. Others might have shivered with memories of starving in Ireland and sworn that they'd never go hungry again. It is all too much to cover in detail in a single episode. What made a lot of it possible was the astonishing growth of the railways and steamships. The Victorians idolised families, and railways gave people the opportunity to work in towns and travel to see more distant families. For the nobility, it was an opportunity to travel to distant country estates to see other nobles or politicians and writers, or especially favoured industrialists or artists. Railways also meant fresh food was much more readily available at lower prices. 
the opening of a new railway line in one of the many railway booms could upend the local economy and provide increased wealth and increased food choice. Poor families were suddenly better off, benefiting local economies and enabling the larger Christmas feasts. For Victorian women, Christmas meant a huge amount of extra work, especially for the servants, also for the poorer housewives. Balanced against this was the reliance of men in service and male workers often having to work late on Christmas Eve in cold, back-breaking labour. How enjoyable your day was, the quality of the food and drinks, all depended immensely on your wealth and social class. For the young, wealthy and healthy nobility, it could truly be a delight. For the servants, it could be enjoyed around the hard work. For the working poor, it was the chance to enjoy themselves, even if money was tight, especially as prosperity grew over the decades. For the destitute in workhouses and prisons, it could be bleak indeed. The message of Christian approved social hierarchy was drummed into the prisoners and inmates. For the destitute on the streets, the battle for survival continued. For the prostitutes, it was a time of demand, as society parties or late-night celebrations meant clientele. For churchmen, it was a busy time of hard work. Sermons had to be written, services arranged, visits to the community made, charitable events, supplies organised and deathbeds to sit by. The rhythm of life continued in the background of celebration. The unlucky Hannah Herbert was sitting in jail over Christmas 1839, awaiting her sentence to be carried out the next year. We will meet her again. Death remained hovering in the wings every day in Victorian times. The brilliant Prince Albert died on the 14th of December, 1861. Victoria would spend that Christmas and many more in deep mourning. Tuberculosis, known to the Victorians as consumption, haunted all classes, as did syphilis and numerous fevers waiting to strike at groups of people in confined houses. The tinges of mortality floated beneath the day, making the core Christian message of life, death and resurrection more immediate to the people of a more religious, more fragile age. Tradition and ritual provided a measure of comfort and certainty in a world where life could be fleeting. It perhaps explains why The Victorians loved ghost stories at Christmas. It became another long-running tradition. They appeared in newspapers and periodicals. Some university dons would invite students to drink by the common room fire and tell ghost stories they had written themselves. Dickens' A Christmas Carol was in a way a part of this growing tradition of ghost stories at Christmas, as well as being a social commentary. Perhaps then it is time to let our imaginations off the hook. Perhaps it is time to imagine ourselves by the fireplace on Christmas Day, 
The splendid meal has finished. The wines have been drunk. The brandy served. And the family gathered comfortably. The children want just one more story from Papa. And surely it wouldn't hurt. So he smiles indulgently and begins to read. But before we begin, gentle listener, I give you fair warning. The tale we now tell is not for the young and weak-stomached. I was but nineteen years of age when the incident occurred which has thrown a shadow over my life. And ah, me, how many and many a weary year has dragged by since then. Young, happy, and beloved I was in those long-departed days. They said I was beautiful. The mirror now reflects a haggard old woman with ashen lips and the face of a deadly pallor. But fancy not that you are listening to a mere puling lament. It is not the flight of years that has brought me to this wreck of my former self. Had it been so, I could have borne the loss cheerfully, patiently, as the common lot of all. But it was no natural progress of decay which has robbed me of my bloom, of youth, of the hopes and joys that belong to youth, snapped the link that bound my heart to another's and doomed me to a lonely old age. I try to be patient, but my cross has been heavy and my heart is empty and weary, and I long for the death that comes so slowly to those who pray to die. I will try and relate, exactly as it happened, the event which blighted my life. Though it occurred many years ago, there is no fear that I should have forgotten any of the minutest circumstances. They were stamped on my brain, too clearly and burningly, like the brand of a red-hot iron, I see them written in the wrinkles of my brow, in the dead whiteness of my hair, which was a glossy brown once, and has known no gradual change from dark to grey, from grey to white, as with those happy ones who were the companions of my girlhood, and whose honoured age is soothed by the love of children and grandchildren. But I do not envy them. I only meant to say... The difficulty of my task has no connection with want of memory. I remember but too well. But as I take the pen, my hand trembles. My head swims, and the old rushing faintness and horror comes over me again, and the well-remembered fear is upon me. Yet I will go on. This briefly is my story. I was a great heiress, I believe though I cared little for the fact, but so it was. My father had great possessions, and no sons to inherit after him. His three daughters, of whom I was the youngest, were to share the broad acres among them. I have said, and truly, that I cared little for this circumstance, and indeed, I was so rich then in health, and youth, and love, that I felt myself quite indifferent to all else. The possession of all the treasures of the earth could never have made up for what I then had and lost, as I am about to relate. Of course, we girls knew that we were heiresses, but I do not think Lucy and Minnie any the prouder or the happier on that account. 
I know I was not. Reginald did not court me for my money. Of that, I felt assured. He proved it. Heaven be praised. When he shrank from my side after the change. Yes, in all my lonely age, I can still be thankful that he did not keep his word, as some would have done, did not clasp at the altar a hand he had learned to loathe and shudder at, because it was full of gold, much gold. At least he spared me that, and I know that I was loved, and the knowledge has kept me going, has kept me from going mad through many a weary day, many a weary day and restless night, when my hot eyeballs had not a tear to shed, and even to weep was a luxury denied me. Our house was an old Tudor mansion. My father was very particular in keeping the smallest peculiarities of his home unaltered. Thus the many peaks and gables, the numerous turrets, and the mullioned windows, with their quaint lozenge panes set in lead, remained quite as they had been three centuries back, over and above the quaint melancholy of our dwelling, with the deep woods of its park and the solemn waters of the mere. Our neighbourhood was thinly peopled and primitive, and the people round us were ignorant and tenacious of ancient ideas and traditions. Thus it was a superstitious atmosphere that we children were reared in, and we heard from our infancy countless tales of horror, some mere fables, doubtless, others legends of dark deeds in olden time, exaggerated by credulity and the love of the marvellous. Our mother had died when we were young, and our other parent being, though a kind father, much absorbed in affairs of various kind, as an active magistrate and landlord, there was no one to check the unwholesome stream of tradition with which our plastic minds were inundated in the company of nurses and servants. As years went on, however, the old ghostly tales partially lost their effects, and our undisciplined minds were turned more towards ball dresses and partners and other matters airy and trivial, more welcome to our riper age. It was at a courtly country assembly that Reginald and I first met, met and loved. Yes, I am sure that he loved me, with all his heart. It was not as deep a heart as some I have thought in my grief and anger, but I never doubted its truth and honesty. Reginald's father and mine approved of our growing attachment, and as for myself, I know I was so happy then that I look back upon those fleeting moments as on some delicious dream. I now come to the change. I have lingered on my childish reminiscences, my bright and happy youth, and now I must tell the rest, the blight and the sorrow. It was Christmas, always a joyful and hospitable time in the country, especially in such an old hall as our home, where quaint customs and frolics were very much clung to, as part and parcel of the very dwelling itself. The hall was full of guests, so full indeed that there was great difficulty in providing sleeping accommodation for all. Several narrow and dark chambers in the turrets 
mere pigeonholes, as we irreverently called what had been good enough for the stately gentlemen of Elizabeth's reign, were now allocated to bachelor visits after having been empty for a century. All the spare rooms in the body and wings of the hall were occupied, of course, and the servants who had been brought down were lodged at the farm and at the keeper's, so great was the demand for space. At the last unexpected arrival of an elderly relative, who had been asked months before, but scarcely expected, caused great commotion. My aunts went about wringing their hands distractedly. Lady Spelthurst was a personage of some consequence. She was a distant cousin and had been for years on cool terms with us all on account of some fancied affront or slight when she paid her last visit. About the time of my christening, she was seventy years old. She was infirm, rich and testy. Moreover, she was my godmother, though I had forgotten the fact. But it seems that though I had no formal expectations of a legacy in my favour, my aunts had done so for me. Auntie Margaret was especially eloquent on the subject. There isn't a room left, she said. Was there ever so anything unfortunate? We cannot put Lady Spellhurst in the turrets, and yet where is she to sleep? And Rose's godmother too. Poor dear child, how dreadful. After all these years of estrangement, and with a hundred thousand in the funds, and no comfortable room at her own unlimited disposal, and Christmas of all times of the year, what was to be done? My aunts could not resign their own chambers to Lady Spelghurst, because they had already given them up to some of the married guests. My father was the most hospitable of men, but he was rheumatic, gouty, and methodical. His sisters-in-law dared not propose to shift his quarters, and indeed he would far sooner dine on a prison fare than had been translated to a strange bed. The matter ended in my giving up my room. I had a strange reluctance to making the offer, which surprised myself. Was it a boding of evil to come? I cannot say. We are strangely and wonderfully made. It may have been. At any rate, I do not think it was any selfish unwillingness to make an old infirm lady uncomfortable by a trifling sacrifice. I was perfectly healthy and strong. The weather was not too cold for the time of year. It was a dark, moist yule, not a snowy one, though snow brooded overhead in the darkling clouds. I did make the offer, which became me. I said with a laugh as the youngest, my sisters laughed too, and made a jest of my evident wish to propitiate my godmother. She is a fairy godmother, Rosa, said Minnie, and you know she was affronted at your christening and went away muttering vengeance. Here she is, coming back to see you. I hope she brings golden gifts with her. I thought little of Lady Spelmhurst and her possible golden gifts. I cared nothing for the wonderful fortune in funds that my aunts whispered and nodded about so mysteriously. But since then I have wondered whether, had I shown myself peevish or obstinate, had I refused to give up my room for the expected kinswoman, 
it would not have altered the whole of my life. But then Lucy or Minnie would have been offered in my stead and been sacrificed. What do I say? Better that the blow should have fallen as it did than on those dear ones. The chamber to which I removed was a dim little triangular room in the western wing and was only to be reached by traversing the picture gallery or by mounting a little flight of stone stairs which led directly upwards from the low-browed arch of a door that opened into the garden. There was one more room on the same landing place and this was a mere receptacle for broken furniture, shattered toys and all the lumber that will accumulate in a country house. The room I was to inhabit for a few nights was a tapestry-hung apartment with faded green curtains of some costly stuff contrasting oddly with the new carpet and the bright fresh hangings of the bed which had been hurriedly erected. The furniture was half old, half new and on the dressing table stood a very quaint oval mirror in a frame of black wood, unpolished ebony I think. I can remember the very pattern of the carpet, the number of chairs, the situation of the bed, the figures on the tapestry. Nay, I can recollect not only the colour of the dress I wore on that fateful evening, but the arrangement of every scrap of lace and ribbon, of every flower, every jewel, with a memory but too perfect. Scarcely had my maid finished spreading out my various articles of attire for the evening, when there was to be a great dinner party, when the rumble of a carriage announced that Lady Spelnhurst had arrived. The short winter's day drew to a close, and a large number of guests were gathered together in the ample drawing room around the blaze of wood fire after dinner. My father, I recollect, my father, I recollect, was not with us at first. There were some squires of the old hard-riding, hard-drinking stamp still lingering over their port in the dining room, and the host, of course, could not leave them. But the ladies and all the younger gentlemen, both those who slept under our roof and those who would have a dozen miles of fog and mire to encounter on their road home, were all together. Need I say that Reginald was there? He sat near me, my accepted lover, my plighted future husband. We were to be married in the spring. My sisters were not far off. They too had found eyes that sparkled and softened in the meeting of theirs, had found hearts that beat responsively to their own, and in their cases no rude frost nipped the blossom ere it became the fruit. There was no canker in the flowerets of their young hope, no cloud in their sky. Innocent and loving, they were beloved by men worthy their esteem. The room, a large and lofty one, with an arched roof, had somewhat of a sober character from being wainscoted and ceilinged with polished black oak of great age. There were mirrors and there were pictures on the walls, and handsome furniture, and marble chimney places, and a gay tourney carpet. But these merely appeared as bright spots on the dark background of the Elizabethan woodwork. 
Many lights were burning, but the blackness of the walls and roof seemed absolutely to swallow up their rays like the mouth of a cavern. A hundred candles could not have given that apartment the cheerful lightness of a modern drawing room, but the gloomy richness of the panels matched well with the ruddy gleam from the enormous wood fire in which, crackling and glowing, now lay the mighty yule log, quite a blood-red lustre, poured forth from the fire, and quivered on the walls and the groined roof. We had gathered around the vast antique hearth, in a wide circle. The quivering light of the fire and candles fell upon us all, but not equally, for some were in shadow. I remember, still, how tall and manly and handsome Reginald looked that night, taller by the head than any there, and full of high spirits and gaiety. I too was in the highest of spirits. Never had my bosom felt lighter, and I believe it was my mirth which gradually gained the rest, for I recognised what a blithe, joyous company we seemed, all save one. Lady Spelthurst, dressed in grey silk, wearing a quaint headdress, sat in her armchair, facing the fire, silent, with her hands and her sharp chin, propped up on some sort of ivory-handled crutch she walked with, for she was lame, peering at me with half-shut eyes. She was a little, spare old woman, with very keen, delicate features of the French type, her grey silk dress, her spotless lace, old-fashioned jewels, and prim neatness of array, were well suited to the intelligence of her face, with its thin lips and eyes of piercing black, undimmed by age. Those eyes made me uncomfortable, in spite of my gaiety, as they followed my every movement with curious scrutiny. Still, I was very merry and gay. My sisters even wondered at my ever-ready mirth, which was almost wild in its excess. I have heard since then of the Scottish belief that those doomed to some great calamity become fey and are never so disposed for merriment and laughter as just before the blow falls. If ever a mortal was fey, then I was so on that evening. Still, though I strove to shake it off, the pertinacious observation of old Lady Spelnhurst's eyes did make an impression of me, of some vaguely disagreeable nature. Others, too, noticed her scrutiny of me, but set it down as the mere eccentricity of a person always reputed to be whimsical, to say the least of it. However, this disagreeable sensation lasted but a few moments. After a short pause, my aunt took her part in the conversation, and we found ourselves listening to a weird tale which the old lady told exceedingly well. One tale led to another. Everyone was called on in turn to contribute to the public entertainment, and story after story, always relating to demonology and witchcraft, succeeded. 
It was Christmas, the season for such tales, and the old room with its dusky walls and pictures and vaulted roof, drinking up the light so greedily, seemed just fitted to give effect to such legendary lore. The huge logs crackled and burnt with glowing warmth. The blood-red glare of the Yule log flashed on the faces of the listeners and narrators, on the portraits and the holly wreathed about their frames, and the upright old dame in her antiquated dress and trinkets, like one of the originals of the pictures, stepped from the canvas to join our circle. It threw a shimmering lustre ominous ruddy hue upon the oaken panels. No wonder that the ghost and goblin stories had a new zest. No wonder that the blood of the more timid grew chill and curdled, that their flesh crept and their hearts beat irregularly, and the girls peeped fearfully over their shoulders, huddled closer together like frightened sheep, half fancied that they beheld some impish a malignant face gibbering at them from the dark corners of the old room. By degrees my high spirits died out, and I felt the childish tremors, long latent, long forgotten, coming over me. I followed each story with painful interest. I did not ask myself if I believed the dismal tales. I listened, and the fear grew upon me, the blind, irrational fear of our nursery days. I'm sure most of the other ladies present, young or middle-aged, were affected by the circumstances under which these traditions were heard, no less than by the wild and fantastic character of them. But with them, the impression would die out the next morning, when bright sun would shine on the frosted bowers and the rime on the grass and the scarlet berries and green sprinklets of the holly and with me. But, ah, what was to happen ere another day dawn? Before we had made an end of this talk, my father and the other squires came in, and we ceased our ghost stories. Ashamed to speak such matters before these newcomers, hard-headed, unimaginative men who had no sympathy with idle legends, there was now a stir and a bustle. Servants, were handing round tea and coffee and other refreshments. Then there was a little music and singing. I sang a duet with Reginald, had a fine voice and good musical skill. I remember that my singing was much praised, and indeed I was surprised at the power and pathos of my own voice, doubtless due to the excited nerves and mind. Then I heard one say to another, I was by far the cleverest of the squire's daughters, as well as the prettiest. It did not make me vain. I had no rivalry with Lucy and Minnie, but Reginald whispered some soft, fond words in my ear, a little before he mounted his horse to set off homewards, which did make me happy and proud, and to think the next time we met, but I forgave him long ago, poor Reginald, and now, the shawls and cloaks were in request. The carriages rolled up to the porch and the guests gradually departed. At last, no one was left but those visitors staying in the house. Then my father, 
who had been called to speak with the bailiff of the estate, came back with a look of annoyance on his face. A strange story I've just been told, said he. Here has been my bailiff to inform me of the loss four of the choicest ewes out of that little flock of Southdowns I set such store by, and which arrived in the north but two months since, and the poor creatures have been destroyed in so strange a manner for their carcasses are horribly mangled. Most of us uttered some expression of pity or surprise, and some suggested that a vicious dog was the culprit. It would seem so, said my father. It certainly seems the work of a dog, and yet all the men are agreed that no dog of such habit exists near us, where indeed dogs are scarce, excepting the shepherd's collies and the swarting dogs secured in the yards. Yet the sheep are gnawed and bitten, for they show the marks of teeth. Something has done this, has torn their bodies wolfish, but apparently it has been only to suck the blood, for little or no flesh is gone. How strange, cried several voices. Then some of the gentlemen remembered to have heard cases when dogs addicted to sheep killing had destroyed whole flocks, as if in sheer wantonness, scarcely deigning to taste a morsel of each slain weather. My father shook his head. I've heard of such things too, he said. But in this instance, I am tempted to think the malice of some unknown enemy has been at work. The teeth of a dog have been busy, no doubt. But the poor sheep have been mutilated in fantastic manner. As strange and horrible, their hearts in especial have been torn out and left at some paces off, half gnawed. Also, the men persist that they have found the print of a naked human foot in the soft mud of a ditch, and near it, this. And he held up what seemed a broken link of a rusted iron chain. Many were the ejaculations of wonder and alarm, and many and shrewd the conjectures, but none seemed exactly to suit the bearings of the case. And when my father went on to say that two lambs the same valuable breed had perished in a singular manner three days previously had perished in the same singular manner three days previously and that they were also found mangled and gourd stained the amazement reached a higher pitch old lady spelthurst listened with calm intelligent attention but joined in in none of our exclamations At length, she said to my father, try and recollect, have you no enemies among your neighbours? My father started, knit his brows. None that I know of, he replied, and indeed he was a popular man and kind landlord. The more lucky you, said the old dame, with one of her grim smiles. It was now late, and we were tired to rest before long. One by one, The guests dropped off. I was the member of the family selected to escort old Lady Spelnhurst to her room, the room I had vacated in her favour. I did not much like the office. I felt a remarkable repugnance to my grandmother, but my worthy aunts insisted so much 
that I should ingratiate myself with one who had so much to leave that I could not but comply. The visitor hobbled up the broad oaken stairs actively enough, propped on my arm and her ivory crutch. The room had never looked more genial and pretty, with its brisk fire, modern furniture, and the gay French paper on the walls. A nice room, my dear. I ought to be much obliged to you for it, since my maid tells me it is yours, said her ladyship. But I am pretty sure you repent your generosity to me. After all those ghost stories, and trembled to think of a strange bed and chamber, eh? I made some commonplace reply. The old lady arched her eyebrows. Where have they put you, child? She asked. In some cockloft of the turrets, eh? Or in a lumber room? A regular ghost trap. I can hear your heart beating with fear at this moment. You are not fit to be alone. I tried to call up my pride and laugh off the accusation against my courage. All the more, perhaps because I felt its truth. Do you want anything more that I can get you, Lady Spellhurst? I asked, trying to feign a yawn of sleepiness. The old dame's keen eyes were upon me. I rather like you, dear, she said. And I liked your mamma well enough, before she treated me so shamefully about the christening dinner. Now I know you are frightened and fearful, and if an owl should but flap your window tonight, it might drive you into fits. There is a nice, soft sofa bed in this dressing closet. Call your maid to arrange it for you, and you can sleep there snugly, under the old witch's protection, and then no goblin dare harm you, and nobody will be the bit wiser, or quiz you for being afraid. How little I knew what hung in the balance of my refusal or acceptance of that trivial proffer. Had the veil of the future been lifted for one instant, but that veil is impenetrable to our gaze. Yet, perhaps she had a glimpse of the dim vista beyond. She who made the offer. But when I declined, with an affected laugh, she said, in thoughtful, half-abstracted manner, Well, well, we must all take our own way through life. Good night, child. Pleasant dreams. And softly I closed the door. As I did so, she looked round at me rapidly, with a glance I have never forgotten, half malicious, half sad, as if she had divined the yawning gulf that was to devour my young hopes. It may have been mere eccentricity, the odd fantasy of a crooked mind, the whimsical conduct of a cynical old person, triumphant in the power of a frightening youth and beauty. Or I have thought since, it may have been that this singular guest possessed some such gift as the Highland Second Sight, a gift vague, sad and useless to the possessor, but still sufficient to convey a dim sense of coming evil and boding doom. And yet, had she really known what was in store for me? What lurked behind the veil of the future? Not even that arid heart could have remained impassive to the cry of humanity. She would, she must have snatched me back, even from the edge of the black pit of misery. But doubtless she had not the power. 
Doubtless she had but a shadowy presentiment, presentiment at any rate of some harm to happen, and could not see, save darkly into the viewless void, where the wisest stumble. I left her room. As I crossed the landing, a bright gleam came from another room, whose door was ajar. The light fell like a bar of golden sheen across my path. As I approached, the door opened, and my sister Lucy, who had been watching for me, came out. She was already in a white cashmere wrapper, over which her loosened hair hung darkly and heavily, like tangles of silk. Rosa, my love, she whispered, Minnie and I can't bear the idea of your sleeping out there, all alone in that solitary room. The very room, too, Nurse Sherrod used to talk about. So as you know, Minnie has given up her room to come and sleep in mine. Still, we should so wish you to stop with us tonight at any rate, and I could make up a bed on the sofa for myself, or you, and... I stopped Lucy's mouth with a kiss. I declined her offer. I would not listen to it. In fact, my pride was up in arms. I felt I would rather pass the night in the churchyard itself than accept a proposal dictated, I'm felt by sure, by the notion that my nerves were shaken by the ghostly law we had been waking up, that I was a weak, superstitious creature, unable to pass a night in a strange chamber. So I would not listen to Lucy, kissed her, bade her good night, and went on my way laughing to show my light heart. Yet, as I looked back in the dark corridor, and saw the friendly door still ajar, the yellow bar of its light, still crossing from wall to wall, the sweet, kind face still peering after me from amid its clustering curls. I felt a thrill of sympathy, a wish to return, a yearning after human love and companionship. False shame was strongest and conquered. I waved a gay adieu. I turned the corner, and peeping over my shoulder, I saw the door close. The bar of yellow light was there no longer in the darkness of the passage. I thought in that instant that I heard a heavy sigh. I looked sharply round. No one was there. No door was open. Yet I fancied, and fancied with such wonderful vividness, that I did hear an actual sigh breathe not far off, and plainly distinguishable from the groan of the sycamore branches as the wind tossed them to and fro in the outer blackness. If ever a mortal's good angel had cause to sigh for sorrow, not sin, mine had cause to mourn that night. But imagination plays us strange tricks, and my nervous system was not overcomposed, or very fitted for judicial analysis. I had to go through the picture gallery. I had never entered this apartment by candlelight before, and I was struck by the gloomy array of torn portraits, gazing moodily from the canvas on the lozenge-paned or painted windows, which rattled to the blast as it swept howling by. Many of the faces looked stern and very different from their daylight expression. In others, a furtive flickering smile seemed to mock me as my candle illumined them, and in all the eyes, as usual with artistic portraits, seemed to follow my motions with a scrutiny and an interest the more marked 
for the apathetic immobility of the other features, I felt ill at ease under this stony gaze, though conscious how absurd were my apprehensions, and I called up a smile and an air of mirth, more as if acting a part under the eyes of human beings than of their mere shadows on the walls. I even laughed as I confronted them. No echo had my short-lived laughter, but from the hollow armour, arching roof, and I continued on my way in silence. I have spoken of the armour. Indeed, there was a fine collection of plate and mail, for my father was an enthusiastic antiquarian. In especial, there were two suits of black armour, erect and surrounded, and surmounted by helmets with closed visors, which stood as if two mailed champions were guarding the gallery and its treasures. I had often seen these, of course, but never by night, and never when my whole organisation was so overwrought and tremulous as it was. As I approached the Black Knights, as we had dubbed them, a wild notion seized me that the figures had moved, that men were concealed in the hollow shells, which had once been born in battle and tawny. I knew the idea was childish, yet I approached in irrational alarm, and fancied I absolutely beheld eyes glaring on me from the eyelet holes in the visors. I passed them by, and then my excited fancy told me that the figures were following me with stealthy strides. I heard a clatter of steel, caused, I am sure, by some more violent gust of wind sweeping through the gallery through the crevices of the old windows, and with a smothered shriek, I rushed to the door, opened it, darted out, and clapped it too with a bang that re-echoed through the whole wing of the house. Then by sudden and not uncommon revulsion of feeling, I shook off my aimless terrors, blushed at my weakness, and sought my chamber, only too glad I had been the only witness of my late tremors. I entered my chamber. I thought I heard something stir in the neglected lumber room, which was the only neighbouring apartment. But I was determined to have no more panics, and resolutely shut my ears to this slight and transient noise, which had nothing unnatural in it. For surely, between rats and wind, an old manor-house on a stormy night needs no sprites to disturb it. So I entered my room and rang for my maid. As I did so, I looked around me, and a most unaccountable repugnance to my temporary abode came over me, in spite of my efforts. It was no more to be shaken off than a chill is to be shaken off when we enter some damp cave, and rely upon it the feeling of dislike and apprehension with which we regard at first sight certain places and people, was not implanted in us without some wholesome purpose. I grant it is irrational, mere animal instinct, but is not instinct God's gift? And is it for us to despise it? It is by instinct that children know their friends from their enemies, that they distinguish with such unerring accuracy between those who like them and those who only flatter and hate them. Dogs do the same. They will fawn on one person. They slink, snarling from another.
show me a man whom children and dogs shrink from, and I will show you a false, bad man, lies on his lips, and murder at his heart. No, let none despise the heaven-sent gift of innate antipathy, which makes the horse quail when the lion crouches in the thicket, which makes the cattle scent the shambles from afar, and low in terror and disgust as their nostrils sniff the blood-polluted air. I felt this antipathy strongly as I looked around me in my new sleeping room, yet I could find no reasonable pretext for my dislike. A very good room it was, after all. Now that the green damask curtains were drawn, the fire burning bright and clear, the candles burning on the mantelpiece, and the various familiar articles of toilet arranged as usual. The bed, too, looked peaceful and inviting. A pretty little white bed, not at all the gaunt funeral sort of couch which haunted apartments generally contain. My maid entered and assisted me to lay aside the dress and ornaments I had worn, and arranged my hair as usual, prattling the while in Abigail fashion. I seldom cared to converse with the servants, but on that night a sort of dread of being left alone, a longing to keep some human being near me, possessed me, and I encouraged the girl to gossip, so that her duties took half an hour longer to get through than usual. At last, however, she was all done, and my questions were answered, and my orders for the morrow reiterated, and bowed obedience to, and the clock on the turret struck one. Then Mary, yawning to answer no, for very shame's sake, and she went. The shutting of the door, gently as it closed, affected me unpleasantly. I took a dislike to the curtains, the tapestry, the dingy pictures, everything. I hated the room. I felt a temptation to put on a cloak, run half-dressed to my sister's chamber, and say I had changed my mind and come for shelter. But they must be asleep, I thought, and I could not be so unkind as to wake them. I said my prayers with unusual earnestness and a heavy heart. I extinguished the candles and was about to lay my head on the pillow when the idea seized me that I would fasten the door. The candles were extinguished, but the firelight was amply sufficient to guide me. I gained the door. There was a lock, but it was rusty or hampered. My utmost strength would not turn the key. The bolt was broken and worthless. Bulked of my intention, I consoled myself by remembering that I had never had need of fastenings yet. I returned to my bed. I lay awake for a good while, watching the red glow of the burning coals in the grate. I was quiet now, and more composed. Even the light gossip of the maid, full of petty human cares and joys, had done me good, diverted my thoughts from brooding. I was on the point of dropping asleep, when I was twice disturbed, once by an owl hooting in the ivy outside, no unaccustomed sound, but harsh and melancholy, once by a long, mournful howling set up by the mastiff, chained in the yard beyond the wing, a long, drawn-out, lugubrious howling that was the latter and much such a note 
as the vulgar declare hell to death in the family. This was a fancy I never shared. I could not help feeling that the dog's mournful moans were sad and expressive of terror, and expressive of terror, not at all like his fierce, honest bark of anger, but rather as if something evil and unwanted were abroad. But I soon fell asleep. How long I slept, I never knew. I woke at once, with that abrupt start, which we all know well, and carries us in a second from utter unconsciousness to the full use of our faculties. The fire was still burning, but very low, and half the room or more was in deep shadow. I knew, I felt, that some person or thing was in the room, although nothing unusual was to be seen by the feeble light. Yet it was a sense of danger that had aroused me from my slumber. I experienced, while yet asleep, the chill and shock of sudden alarm, and I knew, even in the act of throwing off sleep like a mantle, why I awoke, and that some intruder was present. Yet though I listened intently, no sound was audible, except for the faint murmur of the fire, the dropping of a cinder from the bars, the loud, irregular beatings of my own heart. Notwithstanding this silence, by some intuition, I knew that I had not been deceived by a dream, and felt certain I was not alone. I waited. My heart beat on quicker. More sudden grew its pulsations, as a bird in a cage might flutter in the presence of a hawk. And then I heard a sound, faint but quite distinct, the clank of iron, the rattle of a chain. I ventured to lift my head from the pillow, dim and uncertain as the light was, I saw the curtains of my bed shape, caught a glimpse of something beyond, a darker spot in the darkness. This confirmation of my fears did not surprise me so much as it shocked me. I strove to cry aloud, but could not utter a word. The chain rattled again, and this time the noise was louder and clearer but though I strained my eyes, they could not penetrate the obscurity that shrouded the other end of the chamber, whence came the sullen clanking. In a moment, several distinct trains of thought, like many-coloured strands of thread, twining into one another, became palpable to my mental vision. Was it a robber? Could it be a supernatural visitant? Was I the victim of a cruel trick? such as I have heard of, and which some thoughtless persons love to practice on the timid, reckless of its dangerous results. And then a new idea, with some ray of comfort in it, suggested itself. There was a fine young dog of the Newfoundland breed, a favourite of my father's, which was usually chained by night in an outhouse. Neptune might have broken loose, found his way to my room, and finding the door imperfectly closed, had pushed it open and entered. As I breathed more freely, this harmless interpretation of the noise forced itself upon me. It was, it must be the dog, and I was distressing myself uselessly. I resolved to call him. I strove 
not utter his name. Neptune? Neptune? But a secret apprehension restrained me, and I was mute. Then the chain clanked nearer and nearer to the bed, and presently I saw a dusky, shapeless mass appear between the curtains on the opposite side, on the opposite side to where I was laying. How I longed to hear the whine of a poor animal that I hoped might be the cause of my alarm. But no, I heard no sound, save the rustle of the curtains and the clash of the iron chain. Just then, the dying flame of the fire leaped up, and with one sweeping hurried glance, I saw that the door was shut, and horror, it was not a dog. It is the semblance of a human form that now throws itself heavily on the bed, outside the clothes, and lies there, huge and swart, in the red gleam that treacherously dies away, after showing so much to a fright, and sinks into the dull darkness. There was no light left, though the red cinders yet glowed with a ruddy gleam, like the eyes of wild beasts. The chain rattled no more. I tried to speak, to scream wildly for help. My mouth was parched. My tongue refused to obey. I could not utter a cry. And indeed, who could have heard me, alone as I was in that solitary chamber, with no living neighbour, and the picture gallery between me and any aid that even the loudest, most piercing shriek could summon? and the storm that howled without would have drowned my voice, even if help had been at hand, to call aloud, to demand who was there. Alas, how useless, how perilous. If the intruder were a robber, my outcries would but goad him to fury, but what robber would act thus? As for a trick, that seemed impossible, and yet, what lay by my side now wholly unseen? strove to pray aloud, as there rushed on my memory a flood of weird legends, the dreaded yet fascinating lore of my childhood. I had heard and read of the spirits of wicked men, forced to revisit the scenes of their earthly crimes, of demons that lurked in certain accursed spots, of the ghoul and vampire of these, stealing amid the graves they rifled for their ghostly banquets, and I shuddered as I gazed on the blank darkness where I knew it lay. It stirred, it moaned hoarsely, and I heard the chain clank close beside me, so close that it must almost touched me. I drew myself from it, shrinking away in loathing and terror of the evil thing, what I knew not but felt that something malignant was near. And yet, in the extremity of my fear, I dared not speak. I was strangely cautious to be silent, even in moving further off, for I had a wild hope that it, the phantom, the creature, whatever it was, had not discovered my presence in the room. And then I remembered all the events of the night. Lady Spelnhurst's ill-omened vaccinations, her half-warnings, her singular look as we parted, my sister's persuasions, my terror in the gallery, the remark that this was the room Nurse Shepherd 
This was the room Nurse Sherrod used to talk of. And then memory, stimulated by fear, recalled the long-forgotten past, the ill repute of this disused chamber, the sins it had witnessed, the blood spilled, the poison administered by unnatural hate within its walls, and the tradition which called it haunted. The green room, I remembered now how fearfully the servants avoided it, how it was mentioned rarely and in whispers, and when we were children, how we had regarded it as a mysterious region, unfit for mortal habitation. Was it the dark form with the chain, a creature of this world, or a spectre? And again, more dreadful still, could it be that the corpses of wicked men were forced to rise and haunt in the body places when they had wrought their evil deeds? And was such as these my grisly neighbour? The chain faintly rattled. My hair bristled. My eyeballs seemed starting from their sockets. The damps of a great anguish were on my brow. My heart laboured as if I were crushed beneath some vast weight. Sometimes it appeared to stop its frenzied beatings. Sometimes its pulsations were fierce and hurried. My breath came short and with extreme difficulty, and I shivered as if with cold, yet I feared to stir. It moved, it moaned. Its fetters clanked dismally, and the couch creaked and shook. This was no phantom then, no air-drawn spectre, but by its very solidarity, its palpable presence were a thousand times more terrible. I felt that I was in the grey grasp of what could not only affright, but harm, of something whose contact sickened the soul with deathly fear. I made a desperate resolve. I glided from the bed. I seized a warm wrapper, threw it round me, and tried to grope with extended hands my way to the door. My heart beat high at the hope of escape, but I had scarcely taken one step before the moaning was renewed. It changed into a threatening growl that would have suited a wolf's throat, and a hand clutched at my sleeve. I stood motionless. The muttering growl sank to a moan again. The chain sounded no more, but still the hand held its grip of my garment and I feared to move. It knew of my presence then. My brain reeled, the blood boiled in my ears, and my knees lost all strength, while my heart panted like that of the deer in the wolf's jaws. I sank back, and the benumbing influence of excessive terror reduced me to a state of stupor. When my full consciousness returned, I was sitting on the edge of the bed, shivering with cold and barefooted. All was silent, but I felt that my sleeve was still clutched by my unearthly visitant. The silence lasted a long time. Then followed a chuckling laugh that froze my very marrow and the gnashing of teeth as in demonic frenzy. Then a wailing moan 
and this was succeeded by silence. Hours may have passed. Nay, though the tumult, my own heart prevented my hearing the clock strike, must have passed. But they seemed ages to me. And how were they spent? Hideous visions passed before the aching eyes that I dared not close, but which gazed ever into the dumb darkness where it lay, my dread companion through the watches of the night. I pictured it in every aberrant form which an excited fancy could summon up, now as a skeleton with hollow eye-holes and grinning fleshless jaws, now as a vampire with a livid face and bloated form and dripping mouth wet with blood. Would it never be light? And yet when day should dawn, I should be forced to see it face to face. I heard that spectre and fiend are compelled to fade as morning brightened. This creature was too real, too foul a thing of earth to vanish at cockcrow. No, I should see it, the horror face to face. And then the cold prevailed, and my teeth chattered, and shiverings ran through me. Yet there was the damp of agony on my bursting brow. Some instinct made me snatch at a shawl or cloak that lay on a chair within reach, and wrap it around me. The moan was renewed, and the change is stirred. Then I sank into apathy, like an Indian at the stake in the intervals of torture. Hours fled by, and I remained like a statue of ice, rigid and mute. I even slept, for I remember that I started to find the cold grey light of an early winter's day was on my face, and stealing round the room from between the heavy curtains of the window, shuddering, but urged by the impulse that rivets the gaze of the bird upon the snake, I turned to see the horror of the night. Yes, it was no fevered dream, no hallucination of sickness, no airy phantom unable to face the dawn. In the sickly light I saw it lying on the bed, with its grim head on the pillow, a man or a corpse arisen from its unhallowed grave and awaiting the demon that animated it. There it lay, a gaunt, gigantic form, wasted to a skeleton, half-clad, foul with dust and clotted gore, its huge limbs flung upon the couch as if at random, its shaggy hair streaming over the pillows like a lion's mane. Its face was towards me. Oh, the wild hideousness of that face, even in sleep. Its features, in features it was human, even though its horrid mask of mud and half-dried bloody gouts, but the expression was brutish and savagely fierce. The white teeth were visible between the parted lips, a malignant grin. The tangled hair and beard were mixed in lionine confusion, and there were scars disfiguring the brow. Round the creature's waist was a ring of iron, to which attached a heavy but broken chain. The chain I had heard clanking, with a second glance, I noted that part of the chain was wrapped in straw to prevent its gulling the wearer. The creature, I cannot call it a man, had the marks of fetters on its wrists. 
The bony arm that protruded through one tattered sleeve was scarred and bruised. The feet were bare and lacerated by pebbles and briars, and one of them was wounded and wrapped in a morsel of rag, and the lean hands, one of which held my sleeve, were armed with talons like an eagle's. In an instant the horrid truth flashed upon me. I was in the grasp of a madman. Better the phantom that scares the sight than the wild beast that rends and tears the quivering flesh, the pitless human brute that has no heart to be softened, no reason at whose bar to plead, no compassion, naught of man save form and cunning. I gasped in terror. Ah, the mystery of those exsanguinated fingers, those gory, wolfish jaws, that face all besmirched with blackening blood is revealed, the slain sheep so mangled and rent, the fantastic butchery, the print of the naked foot, all, all were explained, and the chain, the broken link of which was found near the slaughtered animals. It came from his broken chain, the chain he had snapped, doubtless in his escape from the asylum, where his raging frenzy had been fettered and bound. In vain, in vain! Ah me, how had this grisly Samson broken manacles and prison bars? How had he eluded guardian and keeper and hostile world and come hither on his wild way, hunted like a beast of prey, and snatching at his hideous banquet, like a beast of prey too. Yet, through the tatters of his mean and ragged garb, I could see the marks of the severities, cruel and foolish, with which men in that time tried to tame the might of madness. The scourge, its marks were there, and the scars of the iron-hard fetters, and many cecatrice and welt that told dismal tale of hard usage. But now he was loose, free to play the brute, the baited, tortured brute that had made him now, without the cage, and ready to gloat over the victims his strength should overpower. Horror, horror, and I was the prey, the victim, already in the tiger's clutch, and a deadly sickness came over me. The iron entered my soul and I longed to scream and was dumb. I died a thousand deaths as that awful morning wore on. I dared not faint, but words cannot paint what I suffered as I waited. Waited till the moment when he should open his eyes and be aware of my presence. For I was sure he knew it not. He entered the chamber as a lair when weary and gorged with his horrid orgy, he had flung himself down to sleep without suspicion that he was not alone, and even his grasping my sleeve was doubtless an act done betwixt sleeping and waking, like his unconscious moans and laughter in some frightful dream. Hours went on. Then I trembled as I thought soon the house would be astir, my maid would come to call me as usual and wake that ghastly sleeper. 
and might he not have time to tear me, as he tore the sheep, before any aid could arrive? At last, what I dreaded came to pass, a light footstep on the landing. There is a tap at the door. A pause succeeds, and then the tapping is renewed, this time more loudly. Then the madman stretched his limbs, and uttered his moaning cry, his eyes slowly opened, very slowly opened and met mine. The girl waited a while, ere she knocked for the third time. I trembled, lest she should open the door unbidden, see that grim thing, and by her idle screams and terror, bring about the worst. Long before strong men could arrive, I knew that I should be dead. And what a death! The maid waited, no doubt surprised by my unusually sound slumbers, for I was in general a light sleeper and an early riser, but reluctant to deviate from habit by entering without permission. I was still alone with the thing in man's shape, but he was awake now. I saw the wandering surprise in his haggard bloodshot eyes. I saw him stare at me half vacantly, then with a crafty yet wandering look, and then I saw the devil of murder begin to peep forth from those hideous eyes, and the lips to part as in a sneer, and the wolfish teeth to bear themselves. But I was not what I had been. Fear gave me a new and desperate composure, a courage foreign to my nature. I had heard the best managing method. I had heard of the best method of managing the insane. I could try, I did try, calmly wandering at my own famed calm. I fronted the glare of those terrible eyes. Steady and undaunted was my gaze, motionless my attitude. I marvelled at myself. In that agony of sickening terror, I was outwardly firm. They sink, they quail abashed, those dreadful eyes for the gaze of a helpless girl, and the shame that is never absent from insanity bears down the pride of strength, the bloody cravings of the wild beast. The lunatic moaned and dropped his shaggy head between his gaunt, squalid hands. I lost not an instant. I rose and with one spring reached the door. I tore it open and with a shriek rushed through caught the wandering girl by the arm, and crying to her to run for her life, rushed like the wind along the gallery, down the corridor, down the stairs. Mary's screams filled the house as she fled beside me. I heard a long, drawn, raging cry, the war of a wild animal, mocked of its prey, and I knew what was behind me. I never turned my head. I flew rather than ran. I was in the hall already. There was the rush of many feet, an outcry of many voices, and a sound of scuffling feet, and brutal yells and oaths, and heavy blows. And I fell to the ground, crying, Save me! and lay in a swoon. I awoke from a delirious trance. Kind faces were around my bed. Loving looks were bent on me by all by my dear father and dear sisters, but I scarcely saw them before I swooned again. When I recovered from that long illness, through which I had been nursed so tenderly, the pitying looks I met made me tremble. 
I asked for a looking-glass. It was long denied me, but my importunity prevailed at last. A mirror was brought. My youth was gone at one fell swoop. The glass showed me a livid and haggard face, blanched and bloodless, as of one who sees a spectre, and in the ashen lips and wrinkled brow and dim eyes, I could trace nothing of my old self. The hair, too, jetty and rich before, was now as white as snow, and in one night the ravages of half a century had passed over my face. Nor had my nerves ever recovered their tone after that dire shock. Can you wonder that my life was blighted, that my old lover shrank from me? So sad a wreck was I. I am old now, old and alone. My sisters would have had me live with them, but I chose not to sadden their genial homes with my phantom face and dead eyes. Reginald married another. He has been dead many years. I never ceased to pray for him, though he left me when I was bereft of all. The sad weird is nearly over now. I am old and near the end and wish for it. I have not been bitter or hard, but I cannot bear to see many people, and am best alone. I try to do what good I can with the worthless wealth Lady Spelthurst left for me, for at my wish my portion was shared between my sisters. What needed I of inheritances? I, the shattered wreck made by that one night of horror. The End That was from A Horror, A True Tale by John Berwick Hardwood. I hope you enjoyed it, this traditional Christmas ghost story. And now, I shall play you out with a Victorian carol. Eat, drink, be merry, and enjoy the many, many fires and delights of the season.